0: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel in the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Matthew Fox Amato, who's an assistant professor at the University of Idaho, and we'll be speaking about his new book titled Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America, which is out just this month from Oxford University Press. Welcome, Matthew.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Christine.
0: So to get us started, could you tell me just a little bit about how you got interested in this topic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I had a longstanding interest in the history of race in America, as well as the history of visual culture. And when I was in graduate school, I became increasingly interested in the work of Susan Sontag, who's a great theorist of photography. And if you read uh, a few of her books on photography, and regarding the pain of others, one of the questions she's really trying to understand is what do representations of suffering do? Um, Do these representations, do these images um, promote empathy that might even lead to some greater form of political engagement? Or on the other hand, do they just desensitize and make us feel detached and produce a kind of compassion fatigue? And so I was interested in that sort of question and wanted to understand it at photography's origins in the mid-19th century. Um, initially, I actually thought I was just going to write about abolitionist photography, uh, mainly because I knew about the image known as the Scourged Back which is a photograph of a fugitive slave who enters Union lines in 1863 outside Baton Rouge, uh, and he poses turning his scarred back to the camera. Um, So I thought I was going to be writing about images like that, uh, but as so often happens with many historians, when when I began to do my research, um, I I did, of course, find um, more abolitionist photographs, but I also started to find photographs that were produced not by abolitionists, but actually slaveholders, I started to find studio portraits made of enslaved people on their own, sometimes enslaved women holding white children. Uh, And these were images that are being produced in the South. And so basically what happened is my book, my project shifted from just kind of focusing on, you know, uh, a social movement and how it used photography, uh, to thinking about photography as a sort of cultural middle ground, that different sorts of historical actors were using for moral and political purposes. Abolitionists, yes, but also slaveholders, too, I began to find evidence also of enslaved people themselves getting photographs. Um, And so that's how the project really emerged.
0: So normally, right now, I would move into talking much more about the insights of your project. But given this description and the really sort of um, unique source base of your um, project, I was wondering if we might actually start by talking about sources. Where are you finding these photographs? And how are you gathering this kind of archive of of objects and, and actual material items that we really don't See that much? I mean, the the photo you reference is quite famous, but a lot of these other ones really aren't super common.
1: Yeah, I, I'd love to. You know, I'll say at the start, if if there was a box in an archive that held fifty or you know uh, even twenty five um, studio photographs of enslaved people, it would have been written about many times by now. Um, so what I really tried to do in my research. Uh, particularly regarding these studio portraits of enslaved people, is piece the archive together, um, archive by archive. So when I started, and this book began as a dissertation, and when I started my dissertation, I actually uh, did a six-month research road trip that actually started, I was coming from California, so it started in Texas. I went down to Louisiana, um, over to Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia. Uh, I really tried to hit um, as many um, Southern archives as I could, and uh, you know and i would find one or two you know maybe even three uh but typically m- no more than that photographs at each site and so that was really um how i how i began to understand um this 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 is an actual cultural phenomenon um and alongside um finding those photographs i just really tried to dig as much as possible into the written records of early photographers and enslavers And in some ways, this was needle in the haystack research to try and understand uh, why it was the slaveholder took a photograph of an enslaved person or what an early photographer was doing, um, taking a photograph of an enslaved person. Um, And that was very hard to get at. Um, I was more successful, actually, in finding out how enslavers were using the photographs they made after the fact, uh, primarily through the letters they were writing to each other.
0: It's really fascinating that is impressive research to uh, do that kind of um, just a few things per archive sort of approach.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, so as you start to look through these, as, as you've kind of mentioned already, you end up talking in particular about sort of four groups of um Folks who are weighing in and participating in debates about slavery in the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. and using photography for that. So, slaves, abolitionists, um, slaveholders, and then soldiers during the Civil War. Um, and I thought maybe we would start by actually talking a little bit about what some of those groups are doing, and maybe not all of those groups, but maybe dive into into one or two groups with a little bit more depth. And since you've already brought up a little bit the slaveholders, mm-hmm. maybe we could start there and talk a little bit about how they're using photography Mm -hmm. and how that is changing and shaping the arguments that they're making surrounding slavery in the 19th century.
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting the ways in which they're using photography. Um, One of the things that was striking to me is photography is born in 1839, pretty much simultaneously in Britain and France. And the French process comes to American shores by um, the fall of 1839. Um, and by the um, mid to late 1840s, um, you see slaveholders begin taking their enslaved people um, to studios and getting portraits made. And in, in terms of the types of portraits, you see individual slaves. Um, you see, as I mentioned, enslaved women holding white children. And, and uh, um, uh, occasionally you'll see two enslaved people by themselves. You also see enslaved people um, sometimes holding um, tools that they're using for labor. Uh, there's one photograph I write about, uh, a man named Hector who poses with an oar and a mailbag over his shoulder. And one of Hector's uh, responsibilities as an enslaved person was to go and get the mail. Um, and so those are the different types of photographs you see. Um, how enslavers are using the photographs uh, is is uh, far more complicated. On the one hand, um, I think at some basic level, these photographs are working to erase the violence, the commodification, uh, the coerced labor that is uh, central to the history of American slavery. Uh, and I say that because when you look at these photographs, uh, you, you're seeing primarily well-dressed enslaved people. You are not getting any images that are, that are capturing um, dissent in action. Um, so, in many ways, they're trying to um, envision or construct um, enslavement as uh, as sort of a humane, familial form of slavery, um, and uh, you know, rather than a system that's buying and selling people and commodifying them. Um, but then, the, the the other interesting thing that they're doing is they're um, circulating these photographs, they're preserving these photographs, um, they're displaying these photographs uh, amongst themselves. So one of the examples I write about is Edward Pringle, who comes from a slaveholding family in South Carolina. And in the 1850s, Pringle moves to San Francisco to practice law. And in a letter back to his mother in the mid-1850s, he says, you know, Mom, thanks so much for sending me your photographs. And thanks especially for the photograph of Mac. Uh, Mac was an enslaved butler in the Pringle's Charleston townhome. And Edward Pringle goes on and talks about, um, talks about Mac's photograph for a full paragraph. Uh, you know, he says he's better dressed than anyone in California. He also says, what a fine representation of the institution this is. I show everyone who comes into my law office, this photograph. Um, so you can see how enslavers are actually using slave photographs to one um, um suture or um, strengthen um, white supremacist bonds amongst themselves through the exchange of these photographs. Uh, You can also see how this becomes an early form of propaganda. Um, While it's not an image that circulated widely, um, in smaller social circles, we see Edward Pringle actually using that photograph um, to try and demonstrate um, as a kind of form of pro-slavery rhetoric um, what slavery is. And the final thing I'll say is while on the one hand, enslavers are trying to show slaves as well-dressed, um, picturing them uh, with some of the conventions that a free person uh, would pose with and for, um, they're also making sure not to allow enslaved people to adopt all of the poses that a free white person could um, could use. Uh, for instance, um, I, I have not found in the archive um, any um, images that I could confidently say were an enslaved person holding a book, um, which was a common sign of literacy and intellect that and you often see um, free white women posing with books. Um, there are a few other visual devices that um, you, you don't see in the archive. Um, and so in that way, they're, they're both elevating enslaved people uh, as a form of rhetoric to show that slavery was benevolent. Um, on the other hand, um, they're really barring enslaved people from adopting certain poses and therefore the connotations of those poses um, so one of my big points is that um, um, slave photography is actually a way for enslaved people to set a boundary uh, um, uh, over which enslaved people can't cross in terms of um, in terms of their social identities. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, a lot of these photographs, as you mentioned in your answer, and you talk about in your book, are being circulated, I guess maybe the word would be informally or kind of personally. Um, so, how, how do you have a sense of kind of how effective this is as a um, solidification of um, the, the support for slavery?
1: It, it's, it's hard. I'll say at the start, it's, it's hard to get a lot of written evidence. Um, Mm -hmm. to show how photographs are being used. This is in many ways needle in the haystack research. The Edward Pringle example I just talked about is the most striking one to me of enslavers actually sharing a photograph and using it explicitly uh, in the defense over slavery. Um, But I have found other ways in which they're Circulating these images and using them. Uh, There's one instance I write about in the mid 1840s, uh, when basically a slaveholder from Mississippi um, is fighting in the Mexican War. And um, he sends a photograph of Harry, who is his enslaved manservant um, from Mexico. Back to Mississippi, um, and people uh, look at it back in Mississippi um, um, his uh, uh, the slaveholder's daughter talks about laughing over the image um, uh, I've found instances in Charleston of slaveholders preserving photographs in different ways, uh, one of which I write about a photograph of Moses, who is an enslaved butler in um, the Manigo family's Charleston townhome. And the photograph of Moses gets put eventually into a family record book. Um, and in that record book, um, there's a lengthy description about Moses's life, and um, basically talks about how he worked till you know, t- he died, um, and uh, kind of goes on. Um, and it's really an image that's, I think, uh, from the manigoes perspective, trying to suggest that this was an enslaved person who, who worked dutifully um, uh, uh, um, within their household um, for for the longest time. Um, rather than someone who had been sold away after so often, um, and so I guess my point here is that um, you know you can see evidence um, from various parts of the South that this is happening. Um, it, it would be difficult to quantify, uh, you know, how much these images are being circulated, um, but uh, you know I, I feel like I I did enough research to say confidently that this was a cultural phenomenon um, that's that's taking place across the slave states.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so as I mentioned before, and you mentioned before, you have these several different groups. And one of the things that, that, especially if one's looking at the way slaves themselves are using photographs, Mm -hmm. one of the things that you're showing is that um, slaves are potentially encountering photography through these slaveholders. Um, who are really carefully choreographing and setting up these photographs, but yet then slaves themselves come to use photography for their own purposes. And I was wondering if then you might talk a little bit about them and how they're kind of contesting this, um, this use that you just described.
1: Sure. And this was the most surprising part of my research. I started to uncover written records, um, Uh, revealing that enslaved people, too, while dramatically poor as a social class, uh, were also able to acquire their own photographs from studio and and itinerant photographers, um, again, from the mid-1840s onwards. And maybe first I'll I'll tell a story about um, enslaved people acquiring photographs and then maybe talk a little bit about uh, what you were asking in terms of how they're contesting enslavers' images. Um, I um, uh, stumbled across one... Early photographers' account. His name is John Bear, and he was an itinerant photographer um, traveling basically across the Eastern Seaboard in the eighteen forties. And um, Bear talks about how he stopped off in Winchester, Virginia, um, that's in the western part of the state, and how he put out his sign one day, um, uh, basically, um, uh, so, you know, uh, charging a um, dollar fifty and a dollar for enslaved people. Um, and he says, uh, enslaved people came in droves to get their portraits made. Uh, and I found other evidence, um, like that. And this really blew my mind. Um, um, the fact that enslaved people were actually acquiring their own photographs. Uh, but then, uh, I immediately began to think, well, photographs might've been even more useful for them, um, than they were for free people, uh, because photographs, in this period, as in other periods, uh, are a really important form of remembrance, and so I began to find other evidence um, of enslaved people um, keeping photographs in their cabins uh, of family members who had been sold away. Um, enslaved people actually mailing photographs to each other after they had been sold away. Um, I write about one. Um, a fugitive slave who talks about um, right before um, he um, right before he bolted, um, he made sure um, to secure away uh, photographs of himself and his mother. Um, and so, one of my points here is that uh, amidst the internal slave trade of Antebellum America, um, enslaved people are using photographs as a way to maintain familial ties. Uh, to maintain um these uh, tokens of affection um uh, once family members have been sold away um and even to use photographs to identify um enslaved people uh family members once they have been sold away um, so in that way um it's it's a it's a kind of a direct uh contrast to what enslavers are doing because here we see enslaved people who are creatively using photography as a way of trying to counteract or, um, or endure um, the conditions of enslavement. Okay.
0: And how is this? Uh, so one of the things that you're talking about in, in the book is both the way that photography is shaping debates about slavery and shaping people's understandings of slavery and also how, slavery and those debates about slavery are ultimately shaping the use of photography. Yeah, And so I thought maybe we would turn to that topic for a little while and Mm -hmm. talk about how um, this comes to be a medium, which will be used for political struggles like this
1: one in the future as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And maybe I might talk a little bit about the abolitionists at this point, Mm -hmm. because as, as you're bringing up, um, i'm both interested in how photography shapes slavery and how slavery and conflicts over slavery really um shape photography into a political tool um i understand photography when it emerges in 1839 as a, as a neutral technology uh, as a technology that's used by many, not one that's simply inherently linked to uh, some kind of uh, social justice. Um, And that's why I try to understand it from multiple angles. Um, That being said, the abolitionists are really central um, to turning photography into a tool for waging um, a social justice struggle. Um, and I look at how abolitionists use photography uh, in a variety of ways. Um, one of the things that immediately struck me as I started to research abolitionist photography is that, you know, photography was it was it was a really poor tool for abolitionists to make the sorts of pictures that they had been making um, in the previous decade, um, in the 1830s, which are and before that, too. Uh, But particularly from the 1830s onwards, um, scenes of the brutalities of slavery, um, scenes of the violence of slavery and various scenes that you can find in anti-slavery prints and almanacs uh, of of enslaved people being whipped and enslaved people being tortured. Um, Photography was uh, um, a, a poor tool for abolitionists to actually make those same sorts of pictures because exposure times in the 1840s and 1850s were too slow. And cameras were too clunky to make action shots. Um, In other words, we don't get abolitionists actually bringing cameras from what I've seen um, down south to try and make those sorts of pictures. Um, That being said, photography was actually a a very good tool for abolitionists to picture themselves. And so one of the things you see from the 1840s onwards is abolitionists making a concerted effort um, to make portraits of themselves and to exchange those portraits with others. um, To... Um, make um, photographs of uh, what I call abolitionist rebels um, who are trying to help fugitive slaves escape once they reach the north. Uh, And they're even making pictures along the Underground Railroad, um, which was um, very surprising for me to see. Um, They're um, making um, photographs in Philadelphia and Cincinnati as fugitives... um, um, enter those hubs, um, before they move onwards as a way of documenting, uh, resistance and action, as well as, um, showing others within the movement of that, showing others within the movement, that resistance.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and what the, the things that you talk about in some of your books and maybe even more, some of the photographs you include in your book really highlight the humanity of, of people and help, um, show individual slaves. Um I th- I can't remember where it is, but in somewhere in your your book you have a quote about talking about slavery as sort of a window into the soul in some ways, you know, and and people really thinking of this as a way to claim a certain amount of identity. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that
1: yeah. aspect. And perhaps Frederick Douglass is is the prime um instance of this. Frederick Douglass, we now know, and um, some of, uh, you know, this work really preceded me by um, John Stoffer and uh, Zoe Chaud and Celeste uh, Bernier um, uh, have shown us that Frederick Douglass was the most photographed person in the 19th century. And Douglass not only makes, I think it's more than 160 different poses or around that 160 different poses. In the 19th century, uh, but he also writes lectures, gives lectures on photography. And one of the things that Douglass basically says is that picture making is uh, constitutive of humanity, that um, picture making is part of what it means to be human. And so when we see Douglas engaging photography so much, it's not only a way to fight anti-Black racism, which for him it absolutely was, because he didn't think white artists could, um, with their hands, actually sketch or draw um, Black people without grossly exaggerating um, their facial features. Um, But it's also a way for him to demonstrate, through the very act of taking these pictures, his fundamental humanity. Um, what was striking to me also about Douglas, and I'll say a few more words about him, is um, the pictures he didn't make, which is to say, the skirched back photograph that I talk about um, wasn't made until 1863. And yet we have fugitives like Douglas in the 1840s and 1850s taking photographs, and yet they never decide to photograph their scars, um, um, despite the fact that. One of the, um, the major early abolitionist photographs, it's known as the branded hand, uh, was, was basically a, um, um, a white abolitionist who, um, who had been jailed in Florida for, for, tr- um, uh, trying to aid a few fugitives escape. Um, and his hand was branded SS for slave stealer. Uh, and when he gets back to Boston, um, uh, he decides, uh, with, um, uh, with a suggestion from another abolitionist to photograph that hand, um, um. I guess my point here is that um, the idea of photographing scars was uh, well known in abolitionist culture after that branded hand photograph in 1845. Um, And yet after that, we don't see people like Douglas um, choosing to photograph their scars, you know, the fugitives we don't have evidence for that. Um, And so this is just another example of how, um, Douglas was really envisioning photography as a way to um, convey one's personhood, um, rather than try and convey, um, say, one's victimhood from his previously enslaved condition.
0: That's really fascinating. Fascinating, and given um, given that decision and that history that you were just talking about, could you talk a little bit about that um, that scourge back back photograph, especially since I think probably, you know, this is a audio um, medium, and probably some photographs that many listeners can call to mind without the book in front of them are the photographs of Frederick Douglass, but then also that very famous photograph, which is, you know, a staple of undergraduate classes talking about slavery. So could you talk just a little bit about that particular photograph and how that does come to be um one that that is so prominent, even though it's not necessarily representative of what abolitionists were doing before the war
1: yeah it's really a it's really a kind of in terms of content in terms of the visual, it's really a shift in what abolitionists are doing, and yeah, that's a photograph that um has has uh uh been a major force in American uh, culture. you know, Many people have seen it in textbooks and lectures and documentaries. And for me, the, the photograph is significant in a number of ways. Um, there's been a, a debate about the identity of the fugitive slave who posed for the camera. Um, and I wasn't able to really uncover much more evidence about who he was. Um, what I w- was trying to under I tried but I couldn't um what I was trying to do is understand how people reacted to it at the time because of course when we look at it it's such a it's such a horrific image um I wanted to understand um what they were thinking at the time and it's basically an image that's produced in the spring of 1863 and it's immediately written about um within the abolitionist press um, you see various articles about it um, from, uh, uh, I believe it's April or May of eighteen sixty-three, um, definitely through the summer, um, and so so. On the one hand, you know, in terms of the 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 actual content of the image, it's it's a it's an image that that very much confirms um, things that abolitionists had been saying all along. Um, that uh, That violence was central um, to enslavement, um, and so for abolitionists I think it's it 's less uh, shocking news to them and more an affirmation um, of what had been said within abolitionist culture for the longest time. And one of the things you see abolitionists begin to do with the image is uh, is they're they're selling it, actually. Um, And at one point in, um, I believe it's August, one of the abolitionist newspapers says that um, basically we've run out of copies of The Scourged Back. Um, So we see abolitionists consuming the image. And, um, and we see them, um, using it in different ways. Um, one abolitionist, uh, basically, um, uh, holds it up, um, during a lecture, uh, in front of the crowd. Um, I found another instance of someone talking about how they put that, um, image in a photo album and, uh, and they basically say they, they force themselves to look at it every day, uh, even though it's so painful, um, and so, uh, like I said, this is an image that really f- confirms for abolitionists um, what they've been saying for the longest time um, and is really a turn with abolitionist culture uh, because, um, you know, during the Civil War, um, we begin to see mass reproducible photography. So one of the reasons the Scourge Back is so well known is because it's a paper photograph um, versus the metal photographs from the 1850s that can't be reproduced. Um, this is an image that can be reproduced en masse. And so um, within the abolitionist movement, as well as beyond it, it does have a major impact um, on how people think about slavery.
0: I, I'm struck, especially thinking about that photograph and what you said at the the beginning when I asked you why you um, came to be interested in this topic uh, about the Susan Suntag type ideas of regarding the pain of others and thinking about photography, and I'm wondering a- after this book, sort of how your thinking about some of the topics that she raises um, has changed, and how thinking about th- those kind or these kinds of photographs, which are are both showing some really truly horrific mm-hmm. um, aspects of the violence, but then are also um, being used for this really uh, a different approach to thinking about still a really horrific and violent institution kind of kind of how those are shaped your thinking on the, those bigger questions
1: yeah uh, and you know one of the things one of the conclusions i've come to is um i mean it's hard to trace um in detail um uh, the the kind of reactions you're getting um to any photograph in the 19th century given the source space, but but from the evidence that I found, one of the conclusions I've sort of come to is that, um, uh, regardless of whether these lead to, um, f- you know, uh, further political engagement or that just sensitize us, one of the things they do certainly do is arouse intense emotion, and so I saw that with the scourged back, um, people uh, it's really getting people up in arms as they're looking at it. Um, I saw that with images that uh, weren't necessarily. About uh, that weren't necessarily depicting suffering, um one instance I write about in the abolitionist chapter is of a photograph of Lear Green, who is an enslaved woman. Um, who escapes basically in a crate um, from Baltimore to Philadelphia. It's a lesser known story than, uh, you know, Henry Box Brown is the kind of famous instance of that, but there's also uh, Lear Green who escapes in a crate. And when she gets to Philadelphia, and this is William Still, a black abolitionist who writes about this, he says um, one of the things they did is basically photograph her getting out of the crate. They did a kind of reenactment photograph. Um, I was reading a diary of another abolitionist, Charlotte Fortin, Um, later on in my research and Fortin talks about going to a photograph studio in Philadelphia. And she says, while I was there, a friend of mine showed me a daguerreotype of a woman. uh, I think she says, you know, getting out of a crate or in a crate. Um, And so it was very likely the photograph of Lear Green that Fortin saw and Fortin goes on and writes a full paragraph, uh, this very emotional um, reaction Um, to seeing the photograph and how much she admired um, the fugitive that she saw escaping, um, how, how incredulous that she was that the institution of slavery could uh, still existed in America. Uh, She talks about, uh, you know, the kind of quote unquote land of Liberty and yet we still have slavery uh, and more. Um, And so, you know, in these sorts of instances, we, it's it's not always that photography is is changing someone's mind, you know. It would be it would be too much to just you know expect or, or want that to be the case. Um, but we see photography um, um, really um, it, um, catalyzing um, certain emotions that are connected to politics in this moment.
0: And I can't help but ask, was there a photograph that for you stood out as being one of the ones that um, was most striking or that you you found most interesting?
1: There were so many. Oh, my gosh. Where do I begin? One of the ones that has continued to be on my mind is um, a photograph of Dolly, who was an enslaved woman in... um, the Menigo household, the uh, Menegos who were uh, uh, aristocratic um, low country family in um, South Carolina and Georgia. They had plantations in both. Um, and in um, uh, during the civil war, um, Dolly, the enslaved woman uh, basically travels inland uh, with her enslaving mistress uh, as many slaveholders did bringing enslaved people in their um, um, possessions uh, uh, inland away from union troops Um, And in 1863, Dolly escapes. And basically what happens is the master, Louis Manigot, um, takes her photograph. It's a paper photograph. And he rips it in half and sticks it to at least two fugitive slave ads that I know of and circulates them uh, and writes these lengthy descriptions about Dolly as slaveholders often did um, when a fugitive slave um, escaped and um and even tells someone uh in a private letter that the, the likeness is really important in such cases because Dolly left with a lot of clothing. Um so he knows that Dolly's gonna try and shape shift as much as possible, but he still has the photograph which he thinks is going to help to identify her. Um, and so uh, what has always been fascinating to me about that photograph is, you know, on the one hand if you just look at the photograph, Dolly is well dressed Um, there's a Gothic chair, um, behind her. It's, it's, if you just took a quick glance at it, you would think it's a kind of regular studio photograph. Um, but then you see how it's being used. Um, so on one hand, a photograph, um, that Menego might've used elsewhere to, uh, to, to proclaim, proclaim that slavery was benevolent and familial, um, is then immediately being used, um, to help try and catch Dolly. Um, So that's always been one of the most interesting ones to me. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. Well, so we, there is a fourth group that we haven't talked about very, very much um, yet that you talk about, namely uh, during the civil war and particularly union soldiers and and photographs with union soldiers with um, former slaves or recent slaves in them. And I found some of the photos that you have from that um, context really striking or in particular I found it striking how you'd have a how you had a couple of photographs look extremely similar uh, despite the fact they are actually different photographs the uh, composition is is quite um, similar across these different moments and so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about what's going on in those photographs
1: yeah and uh, Christine do you remember uh, which photograph you're thinking of in particular
0: yeah. So I'm thinking of you have a couple that are with um, uh, Union soldiers who are kind of in camp and they're mm-hmm. sort of sitting around post. And then they have um, African-Americans who are kind of just outside the group and essentially in service roles. Mm-hmm. I can't remember precisely what it is that they're um, doing, but they're clearly um, physically sort of um, um separate, and they're physically uh, serving the Union troops, even though, of course, it's obviously a, a posed photograph, yes. but they're, they're moved out of the frame in a way.
1: Yes. Yeah. And this was another really striking part of my research. And, uh, and many of these images are in the Library of Congress, but not just the Library of Congress. I saw these sorts of images elsewhere, too. These photographs that are being made during the Civil War, with Union soldiers and um, primarily Black men who are very likely fugitive slaves, uh, um, posing in different subordinated poses, um, serving white Union soldiers, um, kneeling before them. There's one um, really stunning photograph. Uh, It's a bunch of uh, white men with a Black man kneeling in front of them, holding a teacup. Um, they're often holding pictures. Um, sometimes they'll just be on the sides. Um, and I began to, um, uh, look at these images, which haven't been talked about. in you know, I would say to any great degree, um, b- by scholars before, um, and, and was wondering what was going on there. Um, and w- you know, one of my interests here is this is a moment during the civil war when we get, uh, of course, thousands and thousands of union soldiers heading, southwards um thousands of fugitive slaves escaping during the war heading northwards and entering union army camps and then uh hundreds of photographers basically milling about those camps um and as as it turns out they're not just making photographs of um soldiers um you know in the kind of classic studio portrait um, holding their gun or other military paraphernalia uh, to send home to family members. Um, They're also um, in various ways um, making these interracial photographs. Um, And I wanted to really understand, well, what was going on there? Um, And I was lucky to come across some written written evidence that could help me out. Um, I write about one union soldier um, who um, talks about, um, enslaved people and fugitive slaves at length in letters back to his wife in Massachusetts. And one day he actually describes the making of one of these photographs. Um, he basically says, I asked this enslaved man, uh, to come outside of the tent and, um, kneel before me. And we had our picture taken. Um, and you find, um, um, that sort of kneeling pose, although I don't have this photograph. Um, in the archive. It's one of the formulas that they're using. And my argument here is that um, this is a moment of uh, tremendous uncertainty about what the state of race relations will look like, particularly as it becomes clearer and clearer that slavery is going to fall. And in this moment, um, in Union army camps, these kind of haphazard biracial communities, um, you see white Union soldiers drawing upon photography, uh, to primarily, I suggest, um, uh, create a vision of racial hierarchy as slavery is falling. Um, it's a way for them to, uh, articulate, um, um, their relationship to black people, um, as they know that, um, that the world is really changing.
0: So throughout the book, you've traced these different uses of photography, um, during, or during these slavery debates and then through the war. And then towards the end, you start to talk a little bit about the legacy of this use of photography. Yes. And as we talked about at the beginning, probably many people are are familiar with and think about the use of photography in various um, social movements or or political debates, especially in the 20th century. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about these legacies. And in particular, which you mentioned a little bit in the book, if you might talk about um, this legacy moving into things like lynching photographs mm-hmm. and other kinds of photographs of that um, nature that we're probably a little bit more um, familiar with. Yes, um, and how it connects to this earlier history. Yes,
1: and one of my one of my fundamental points in this book is to say that you know while we think of photography as a political tool in the twentieth century, that history actually begins in the mid nineteenth century. And through conflicts over slavery, um, so we think about, um, say, uh, the civil rights movement and um, and how civil rights protesters um, used photography. Um, we think about um, uh, Jacob Reese and Lewis Hine, though not uh, necessarily part of a social movement in the same way, but certainly as uh, political refo- photographers, as reformist photographers at the turn of the century, um, uh, working to to photograph um, the ills of industrialization um my um my argument is that actually um um through conflicts over slavery um photography has actually turned into a political tool so it be, so it is commonplace by the 20th century because um it was rendered that way um in the antebellum period and during the civil war um and so there are various legacies that um one can draw out from the different strands of photography I'm, Talking about um, the abolitionists, as I've mentioned before, are really the pioneers in using photography within a social movement, both to to show um, um, social conditions that need to be changed, so that you know the scourged back is an example of that, trying to um, show a world you you want to reform or uh, demolish, um, and also. Um, using photography within a movement. And that's part of my point about abolitionists is they use photography internally, um, to strengthen their own bonds, uh, to energize their own movement. Uh, and we can see that persisting. Um, you asked about, um, lynching photographs, which I see as a direct, um, extension of the slaveholding photography that begins in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, of course, of course the, The content of those images is very different, but I see it as an extension of the practice, which is to say in the 1840s and 1850s, slaveholders are using photography um, to bolster white supremacy um, by elevating and subordinating enslaved people. They're using photography um, to maintain white supremacist ties amongst themselves by circulating those photographs amongst themselves, um, as the Edward Pringle uh, case illustrates, um, and those practices continue with lynching photography. You know, lynching photography is not only the horrific images themselves, but um, 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 whites are actually um, using those images. They're circulating those images amongst themselves, um, and so that in that way, it's a kind of there's a direct thread line um, from the slave photographs that I talk about to those lynching photographs. Well,
0: and since in both of the cases that you're talking about, and in cases of lynching photography, we can really think about um, these photographs as, a visual document and as a material item. And one of the things you're doing in your book, both explicitly, you know, in places like your introduction and then throughout is demonstrating the importance for historians to be thinking about these kinds of sources in both of those ways. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you might sort of uh, take a step back and talk about that aspect for a moment um, before we leave the topic, which is both, Not just why that's important, because I think what you've already said demonstrates why that's important, but how historians can do a better job of looking at um, whether they be photographs or something else, but as both a material object and a visual source to really get a more complete and um, uh, contextualized history using that kind of source.
1: Absolutely. And I I realized very quickly that to understand photographs as both historical sources and historical forces, that I wasn't just going to be able to use the photographs themselves. So one can only say so much about those slave photographs that I've been talking about by looking at their aesthetic elements. And I do try and understand them visually. Um, one of the things that's really striking about slave photographs is how they actually bring enslaved people to the centers of frames. Versus in previous paintings uh, produced by slaveholders in colonial America and early 19th century America, Um, enslaved people's bodies are often in um, painted portraits as um, kind of sideline props. Um, uh, when the portrait is primarily about um, a white person, Uh, George Washington, for instance, is painted on at least two occasions with an enslaved person in that way, Um, rather than making enslaved people uh, the central subjects of the images. And so, uh, you know, if you're just thinking visually, that's one of the things that slave photographs did is it it brought enslaved people's bodies, faces, emotions to the centers of frames. Um, But, We can only know so much about them by simply looking at them as as two dimensional objects. I knew I had to think about them as three dimensional objects, objects um, in the world, objects that were um, being circulated and displayed and preserved and reacted to um, to really understand them at the time. Um, and that to me um, is what's so important about understanding um, them both as visual and material objects, because then we understand them as social forces in the world. Um, and that takes that takes um uh it, that's an empirical um issue at that point. Then it's actually about digging. Um and this is I think where historians really stand to contribute to the study of images, because that is um, our forte, um, digging into the archive. Uh, And I did quite a bit of digging. Um, You know, I'd spend a whole day looking through slaveholders' letters, just hoping I would find something about how the photograph was used. Um, And every once in a while, I came across a gem. Um, But that was really where I I, I spent much of my time doing the research, um, trying to understand uh, how these images um, were being um, actually used and interacted with in the world.
0: Well, it's a wonderful book, and thank you for doing all of that uh, serious digging and that hard work um, in order to share these images and their use with your readers um, and for talking to us. But before you go, I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about what you're working on now.
1: I am still trying to figure out my next book, but it will very likely be on visual culture and race, and I've gotten more interested in the everyday visual culture of Jim Crow America. Um, there are um, so many different important visual forms that play a role, I think, in bolstering as well as subverting um, uh, race uh, racism in this moment. Um, whether one thinks of the the kind of emergence of um, Confederate monuments. Uh, to postcards and other forms of ephemera Uh, so uh, so I'm interested in some ways keeping you know um, uh, uh, this issue of race and visual culture at the center of my research as I go forward and it will likely uh, be late 19th and early 20th century
0: Well that sounds wonderful, I look forward to uh, seeing that project when it um, reaches its fruition.
1: Sounds great and thank you so much for having me
0: Well thank you